Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. The Noble Bachelor, a recap. Holmes and Watson are in 221B Baker Street. Watson's um, reading the papers and they're discussing briefly the fact that there's not a great deal going on in the world, but there's some sort of intrigue about the marriage of Lord Robert St. Simon to a uh, American lady, a fascinating American lady uh, called Hattie. There's been a bit of an intrigue because they got married, this couple got married, and inexplicably after the wedding not before it as Holmes observes but after it the bride Hattie runs off and uh, no one knows where she's gone and so she's gone missing completely Lord Robertson Simon is a, is a young man but he's quite sort of snobby and he's all he talks about you know is his, his, his very important family name and you know just you know what how horrible this is it's a very very quiet affair this wedding as well so Holmes is a bit sort of concerned about why that would be because normally a big society wedding you know they expect everything but it's a very very quiet ceremony indeed but the big news is is that Hattie has disappeared Robertson Simon um turns up at 221B Baker Street um he writes a letter in advance uh, and soon comes round and talks through it what was kept quiet in the papers about this wedding was the fact that um not only did the bride run away but um, during the wedding breakfast a woman tried to gain entry into the room to speak to Robert St. Simon and it was a, a woman called Flora Miller who was a dancer at the Allegro Club obviously on a very, very different social level to um, Lord Robert St. Simon and there's some intrigue about whether Flora Miller um, has got hold of Hattie and has either done away with it or done something anyway and uh, she was led away Lestrade then um, shows up and um, uh, they discuss exactly what's going on one thing that Robert St. Simon did say though was that during uh, the ceremony, she saw a man in the front row. She dropped her bouquet and a man in the front row gave it back to her. And she was very flustered after that uh, and was also quite abrupt um, to her husband. She said, he said that she was quite abrupt anyway because she grew up in a mining colony in America. And, um, you know, she she had a sort of <laughs> a, a very free and easy way of learning rather than, you know, Robert's assignment. He was very, very sort of stiff and austere and what have you. Um, but... This um, dropping the bouquet really did something to her, and she went to speak to her maid. Robertson Simon says that he's that the maid is probably a little bit too secretive, and you know really should um, spill the beans or have that conversation about. Although he did hear the term um, jumping a claim, which you couldn't quite understand. Holmes seems to know what that means straight away upon, upon saying it. So when Lestrade turns up, he um, 
he gives out his own theories and Holmes mocks him really about you know what he thinks going on and uh, Lestrade is carrying a big bag and um, he sort of what's in the bag then and he says well um, do you think this has happened no you know, do you think she's gone missing no and then Lestrade says well, look, in that case if you don't think she's been done away with can you explain this and he opens the bag and it's got a wedding dress in it and a ring and a piece of paper on it as well which completely stuns Holmes but it's sort of at the same time, he's sort of quite happy because he thinks it fulfills a theory he has about this. Lestrade goes off in a huff because he's being mocked at one point. Holmes says to him, you've been draining the serpentine. Did you also drain the, the, the main fountain at Trafalgar Square? Because you might as well have got more news from that as you did from the serpentine before, obviously, he reveals his swag. With Lestrade gone uh, off in a huff, um, Watson um, is left sitting alone back to reading his papers again. Holmes goes out and does some legwork for a change. And whilst Watson's sitting there, he doesn't have a chance to be bored for very long because the messenger boys uh, are bringing over what can only be described as a large gourmet meal. They're bringing home lots of food and a nice big table to set up. And they're clearly having a, some sort of a society dinner. Watson is completely stunned by this, obviously. Lord St. Simon turns up at this point as well. And obviously he's still not very happy about what's going on. And he's a bit confused about why he's been invited to this thing. Um, Sherlock says he'd, he'd like him to meet um, Mr Francis um, Moulton uh, who is unknown to him but he says the woman you might know uh, he says okay and it is Hattie his bride there then follows an explanation from Hattie herself who says that this the gentleman was Frank who she married uh, in America but because they were on different social standing when her father made his fortune um, poor Frank didn't make his when Frank and Frank said we will be married so they got married and they said we know I will make you um, I, I, we know we will be comfortable together and we don't have to live sort of in secrecy as they almost were um, so Frank went off and was actually attached, attacked by Apache Indians where he went um, so much so that for years that um, Hattie thought he was dead um, so therefore she can marry whoever she wants on the day of the wedding then so she meets Robert and Simon in San Francisco she agrees to be married to him, even though her heart is with Frank, but he's dead. They go to London, they get married, only to, when she discovers that seconds after she's married him, she looks into the, into the man at the, she looks at the man in, in the pew in the front row and sees Frank sitting there. He's Francis, but he's Frank uh, in the latter part of this short story. She drops her bouquet, he picks it up, but he puts a note in it as well, explaining, you know, don't make a fuss, we'll just come and have a chat somewhere else. Um, she then obviously tells her maid that to make plans so she can sneak out of the wedding so um she's so ashamed by what's happened that even though she knows that you know there's going to be lots of very very posh people who are very very important to Roberts and Simon um she has to run away um they come up with the idea of throwing the wedding dress and the ring into the into the serpentine and therefore no one can possibly trace them but enter Sherlock Holmes the other side of the note which Flora Miller had sent to her that was the, the purpose of the note there was a list of prices from her hotel. Holmes deduces straight away that this is quite a big posh hotel and um, he finds it and, and traces the bill and traces where the loving couple are. They explain to him this was outside of the, the narrative as a word, like, you know, they were going to run away. But he says, no, come and tell Robert St. Simon. He deserves that at least. And they have a little chat about that. Robert St. Simon isn't happy at all, doesn't like this at all, shakes hands but very, very weakly and walks out again. Um, Holmes, Holmes observes in the very last paragraph that maybe we should just let him off of that. He's got every right to be a bit wrong, a bit, to be a bit moody about it, and they just have their dinner. And that is the noble bachelor. 
My guest this week is Trevor Downey to discuss the uh, the Noble Bachelor. Um, Trevor Downey um, is the host alongside his um, his partner in crime, Neil Poole, of the Great Stories podcast, which is about short stories that um, both he and Neil like. Um, Neil and Trevor are um, teachers and well-versed with the written word, shall we say. And sadly, I wanted both of them on, but Neil's been all over the place at the moment. He um, tends to be run around a lot to probably the most busiest man I think we've ever known, but I have got Trev. I should say um, uh, at the outset that Trev and I, I think we've done something like 200 podcasts together, Trev. Easily. It's got to be, isn't it? So we do something called the Anfield Index main show, which I think we've done for about two and a half years, plus other things as well. So Trevor's the host of that. Um, He's also a writer up from Liverpool, about Liverpool Football Club, and he hosts a incredibly name-droppy show, with uh, a man called Jan Malby, who played for Liverpool's midfield um, <laughs> in the 80s and early 90s. And um, and he likes to lord that over myself and my fellow guests on the Anfield Index podcast. Um, but we're not here to talk about football, Trev. We're here to talk about, first of all, I want to talk to you about um, the great stories. Why the great stories? What, what made you and Pooley come up with that? Well, I love the way you've set me up as a booby prize here already, Carbac. Thanks yeah. for that. That's marvelous. Um, that's that's a marvelous start. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I was just sitting there. First of all, I was going, "Who's this Trevor Downey blog?" And then, uh, then I know, yeah, I've got to call you by your real name. It's weird. It's both syllables. Um, look, uh, I've spoken to you about it as it was sort of um, formulating in my head and in various stages of um, prep. It's something I've always wanted to do, and I've always been a reader. And I'll be honest; I'm going to be straight up here. I I ended up doing a literature degree, but until I left secondary school for college, all I read was whatever was on the school course um, in terms of you know high literature. But I read voraciously anything I could get my hands on, any kind of uh, detective novels, western novels, anything I could get my paws on, I read. Um, and so I've always loved words. I've loved um, reading, and I've really developed a fondness for this crack, uh, the podcasting genre, um, over recent years as well. And I wanted a project of my own, and the project that um, seemed to fit for me best was something that was going to embrace books and stories. Um, now, instead of doing novels, which I might have leaned towards initially, I thought, well, why not have something where you've got a full experience? for the listener they get to hear the story in its entirety and then they get to hear two guys talking about it in as unpretentious a way as possible and yet trying to add a little bit of clarity or insight or something that has come from the research done by both of us um pre-show so i think it's a formula that works it's by far the 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 best thing i've ever been involved with it's the thing i'm proudest of that i've ever created um we're on show 20 now next one up is show 20 it's a return appearance for dennis johnson and if you're listening to this and you're fond of reading and you haven't heard of dennis johnson rectify that as soon as possible but obviously we've touched off all the greats you know we've had a couple by Chekhov uh we've had Carver and Cheever and um you know uh, Virginia Woolf we've had lots of 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 great well-known writers um but you know the thing is to give the people a full like I say full exposure to a piece of literature in its entirety um and I think that's the the strong point of the show Carl. Well it's interesting to say that because uh, I, we're both writers, and when I started writing fiction, I 
this how, how things things have changed really. I started writing short stories. I had about five or six together, and um, the reason I got into novel writing is because my a friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, sent it off to a, a friend of hers called Sarah. And said, "Is this okay?" And I got this this huge email back saying. Firstly, this is quite good. You're good at what you do. You've got a nice voice and everything, but you overwrite like no one else I've ever seen. Hmm. Don't worry, everyone overwrites. This isn't a criticism. And I'm reading it thinking, who the hell are you? And in the end, it says, blah, 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 I won't give a name, um, commissioning editor of Hodder and Stoughton. I was like, what? Okay. Um, but what she said, which is really interesting, she said, you will not sell short stories. Pick your favorite short story and make it a novel. Grow around it. Put extra characters in. And at some point, a narrative will, will you know, unearth, and therefore you will have a novel, which is what I did with my first book. But it's interesting because I'd say in the sort of, I'd say from about the twenties onwards, and I even, well, even go back to Sherlock. In fact, the short story, because it was aligned to sort of serials and newspapers and what have you, that was far more, you know, after the sort of, you know, after the Jane Austen period and what have you, that was pretty much the way that people took in their literature. They took it like it was episodic. It was like Flash Gordon almost. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. and, that, and that's changed now completely. Now it's gone back again to, to uh, you know, people don't really bring out. I, I can think of Irvin Welsh maybe it brings out books of short stories, but hardly anyone else does these days. Yeah, I think it's very. I think it's increasingly difficult though to even sell a book and a story, no matter what the the the, the genre and which you're writing is. Um, everything's changing, as you said. Like, I mean, just look across media. Te- television has taken over from film. That's episodic. Uh, you can binge it. You can go one after the other. Or you can wait and do your weekly thing. Not many people do that anymore. You see, the thing about the short story is, if it's done well, and you'll know this, if it's done well, if you if it's really nailed brilliantly, um, then what you get is the very best of literature in a kind of little uh, bite size uh, uh, chunk. And I think that there's something marvelous about that. There's something really, really good about that. You can have the absolute heights that you can ascend to in terms of um, the aesthetic quality of writing in a novel mirrored in a short story. But you also have the payoff of the uh, entire tale uh, playing out in a short space of time. There's a lovely payoff. And look, I don't want to sound evangelical, Carl, but... I do have an interest in this being something that people listen to uh, en masse and growing the hell out of this show. And I think if you're going to dip your toe into literature, and this has been a response from all the people who've been so kind in their responses to it, and the, the, the response has been overwhelming. People, the people who like it really like it. And the answers that we've been getting, or the response we've been getting is, look, I pro- this wasn't really my thing. I didn't think this would be my thing. I, I'm not really a literature guy, but this was incredibly powerful to hear a story and then get teased apart afterwards with two guys who are not taking themselves too seriously. Um, it seems to work for them, man. Yeah, and, and that's um, um, we we had on on the, the the show that we do together, which you host. Um, <laughs> this is really strange because the first show we ever did was with Neil Atkinson and. He's interviewed me again 50, 60 times, and to to have you know to be sat with the behind the microphone in the big chair for once is a bit weird for me. So this is yeah. really off me too. I, I will at some point be pausing to wait for you to ask me a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that is going to happen. But we we asked one question on the podcast because even though that show is about football, it's nominally about football, and it's yeah. just me and you and Cam talking about stuff like this for ages for a while, and then. You know, sort of almost reluctantly bringing it round to football. Um, I asked a question on um, uh, on one show: is if you're listening to an audio book, have you read the book? 
is it the same thing? Have you read that book if you've listened to it? And yeah. I don't think there's a complete, there's a yes, or that's yes and no at the same time. There's, there's no one um, you know, definitive answer to that. But what I find really interesting about the, about the great stories is people don't have time to read anymore. At least that's what they tell themselves. I will yeah. make time to make to read. But because of, I'll give you an example. So the first story you covered on the great stories was um, the Shelley Jackson story, The Lottery. I love that story. Always have done. And it's great. And I obviously I wanted to listen to you because it was you and it was Neil and, and what have you. But when I saw it was that one, I thought that's going to get me to work. I will get to work. And it's my mate you know, telling the story and what have you. So that's going to work really, really well. So I think that's another reason why the show would succeed, really, just because it's an audiobook, And then it's people, you know, talking about it. I hope so. I really hope that's the, that's the thing. And, and you know, it, it, again, like with all podcasts, uh, people get this feedback all the time. The variety of places where it's it's uh, enjoyed or sampled is remarkable. It, it could be the gym. It could be, as you say, in transit uh, on the way to work. It could be, you know, on a train. It could be whilst I consume a tremendous amount of podcasts at very high ear bleeding volume whilst I'm mowing the ridiculously large chunk of grass that I'm left to tend with here. So people have their own ways of, of, of consuming it. And, you know, like I'm very aware of the last one I did was was an incredible story called Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and dear God, that's an affecting piece of writing. It yeah. takes, it, it reaches into your guts, gives them a twist and chucks them back at you and says, do what you want with that. It's probably, and I'm talking about the best of the best authors we've covered. We have covered really, honest to God, I've, I've gone out of my way to pick the very, very, very best authors and the best kind of writing. I remember being so blown away by the Virginia Woolf story that I think this won't be topped in terms of aesthetic quality. Well, Baldwin just knocks it for six. So, the, and I'm wondering, I think it's a really good question. I'm wondering, can you hear that? Because what I did to test this, right, obviously I'd read this story before a long time ago. Um, before I read it this time, I listened to it. And uh, some plummy lady, uh, plummy voiced lady trying to do accents. It was hilarious. But the story itself, the the little the little lyrical flourishes, they worked a treat. They actually worked a treat. You could yeah. you could hear you could hear the little lovely turns of phrase. Um and and I, I so I think the short answer is yes, you can hear actually hear the art. You can engage with it, but it is a different a different um experience when you're sitting down in a book on your lap and you're you're reading. I, I get that. And that that's going to be the the pinnacle for some people, but it's it's no mean alternative, I'll tell you that. No, it is a question straight out of nowhere. Because this has been, um, I, 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 for the first time ever, I started doing filmed podcasts um, for another website. And behind me in my kitchen on my sill, I have books to read. And, uh, and a mutual friend of ours said, I've noticed that that, that, that um, little collection you've got there hasn't gone down noticeably, over the <laughs> even though we're in lockdown. Yeah. How many books have you got to go? How many, how, how, yeah, how many books are in, 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 of your, uh, right, I'll buy that and I'll read that soon. Okay, I'll give you. I'm I'm staring straight across. I've got I've got finally got this room that I wanted all my freaking life, and I've got my desk, and I'm facing back over towards this lovely comfortable chair that I bought, and I stretch out there and that, and I read whenever I can. Sadly, I can probably go one worse than your pile. I have two, four, six, eight, nine, ten books on, in a pile there, and I have dipped into four of them which means that there are six um, unloved, unwanted um, little babies there that I've yet to, to cherish. But I will get to them. It's a matter of time. 
Well, but I can tell you, I've got a, I've got two sections. I've got an Ian Rankin section on oh, its own. Ian Rankin, but, but, but before you go into the other ones, <laughs> he's got his own little shelf. Can, um, can, can I can I steer one right back at you? Obviously, well, we're going to talk about this guy and this author. But there's the one sort of go-to author that you have. For me, it's either Updike. Um, yeah, I've got everything by Updike. I've got everything by McCarthy. I've got everything by. I think I think I've got everything by Philip Roth as well. It's funny you just go to these go-to guys. Do you do you have anyone like that? Yeah, well, I'm trying. I'm trying to do the ranking books, the Rebus the books ranking. in order. And I know you don't need to. And I've I've actually read. Uh, it House Full of Lies, I think it was called. I read that on holiday last year, and right. that was that was far too recent. But you know, as, as Ian Rankin says, you know, they're, they're not an order. You can just it's just various parts of his life. But you know, there's not really that discernible. You know, it, one doesn't follow one from the other. So he said, you don't have to do that. But I thought, no, no, I want to do it properly. You know, exactly. I, 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 I want to go please, 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 to let me let it be. You know, I want to do the whole thing, yeah. run the, the whole thing in one go. Um, moving on to Sherlock, um, of Let's course. 56 Sherlock Holmes short stories. Mm-hmm. So, so Sir Arthur obviously was writing them for the Strand magazine and, you know, for, for Mrs. Beaton's and what have you. Um, so the collection of short stories of which this is number 10 out of 12 in the first section of the, the events of Sherlock Holmes. So we're not going to put you on here as a Sherlock Holmes expert. You're not Leslie Klinger. No one, by the way, is Leslie Klinger who, as, as I said before, I know my Sherlock, but good Lord. Uh, poor, poor John in the background, he was reference checking all the time, then just stopped bothering because it's Leslie Klinger, he could basically tell you where the full stops are and everything. Um, did, did he, what was your Sherlock experience, if you've got one at all growing up? Um, I, I, I do, I do, I have a few. Um, I have, if, if there's one thing that even rivals um, um, the literature thing with me, it's film. And I was obsessed um, with Sherlock Holmes as a film character when I was a kid and so I saw all uh, I saw quite a few I'm not sure how many there were in total but I've seen them all the Basil Rathbone ones and there was something about the atmosphere of those that I really loved and so that got me into um I I think I have a Penguin edition I think I still have it you know uh the adventures of Sherlock Holmes so I would have read A Scandal in Bohemia and uh, by the way I see Atkinson gets A Scandal in Bohemia and I get uh, <laughs> I get the no, I get the Nobel Bachelor cheers to that uh, but so oh, I, 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 uh, John by the way John got a case of identity <laughs> I still mean, not forgiving you for that Carl no no and I, I promised you something big later in the season just to <laughs> just, just, just to apologise for, for giving you case of his You had me down for the engineer's thumb, I believe, initially. But then, whatever we 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 got, I I think somebody else requested it. So yeah. I, so 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 that, that I, and I didn't mind the least. Yeah. So I read a scandal in Bohemia, and I read. I think what else did I read? Oh God. Um. I I, I read a few. I read a few of them, and. They, they they stuck with me because what I loved about the guy, the character, and I still do, is this kind of uh, urbane, insouciant arrogance that he's got, where it's just, you know, and the TV versions have tried to play that up lately. You'll notice this. They try to do these little, um, uh, you know, the the movie, the Robert Downey movies, the 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 ben, Benelin Cumberbund TV series. They do this thing. They have. I prefer, I prefer Benelin Cucumber. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I've got that. 
<laughs> well, uh, Benedict Cabbage Patch. There we go. <laughs> That's the definitive one, John. You've got it. Um, but that it, they do this thing where you know he's he's prefiguring what's about to happen because this is how bright he is and his his mind works ahead of him. But I love that about the character. So that's what that's what fascinated me about the character from a very early age. I mean, I'm talking. I I, I was probably about twelve, and you know, th- th- I didn't really. I'll be honest. I didn't consider. Uh, even when I was going to college, I was wondering, is, is this is, is this qualified? Did, did it qualify as literature? But of course, when you go back and read them as a, as a mature reader, you can see how, how, how well they're written. Yeah, yeah, you really can. I mean, I've, I've said more than once that I got to them quite late and I couldn't believe just how good they were. And that's what we were saying before as well about being short stories, but just how concise they are and how much story he gets in. Um, even when he just, you know, recycles plots, which he does later on in the series. Fortunately, the early ones are the, are the most original ones, as you can tell. But as you can, you know, as you can see when you read them. But um, I, I th- was genuinely stunned at just how much plot he gets in, how much character he gets in in something like twelve pages, a lot of the time. And in that time, he's got to get in different scenes. He's got to get Watson going. He's got to explain his attitude to women, his, his, his attitude, as we're going to see with this, to sort of in like, you know, um, the upper echelons of society, as they'd be called, and then the story. And that, that I think that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I suppose at times, because they were in, you know, the, the equivalent of newspapers and what have you, they weren't really taken that seriously until a lot like, um, and you have been mentioning this at some point, unlike um, um, P.G. Woodhouse, who was, always spoken of as a sort of just a farcical writer until Balzac said, by the way, watch what he does. It's fantastic what he does. That is genuine skill. That's why he's called the master. Mm. So, so I, I think it, it really is a deep, deep literature, even though it's quite throwaway and, you know, light as a feather stuff half the time, even though, you know, at some point we're going to talk about a story with has got um, ears sent through the post, you know, really because of dark stuff like that. Yeah. But um, not in this one, obviously. <laughs> Today, um, yet again, we've come across a um, a, a no crime um, Sherlock, um, which I think is a bit different. So yeah, I, th- I think they are very sort of. I think that the Conan Doyle has, has been changed over the decades as a sort of just a, a nice, great, you know, almost like I'm trying to think who could like almost like a Dick Tracy thing for the Victorian era into something like man, this man has got proper skills to do this. Well, that's it. The, the, I noticed this with with H.G. Wells as well. Um, the, the science fiction writing, detective fiction, anything like that, the, you know, it, it wasn't quite sneered upon. It was massively popular, but yeah. the, the 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 literati of the era wouldn't have uh, would have condescended to it. Um, so, as with a lot of stuff, it, sometimes they it, it takes time for uh, the true worth of it to be elevated. And you know, I, I I need to ask you this because I don't know if we're going to get back to generalizations before we get into the details of this story specifically but i came across something when i was doing a little bit of research for this and it was i think it was robert louis stevenson this has probably come up in a podcast already so feel free to give me the short shrift if you want but robert robert louis stevenson um who what at the time was in samoa um contacted uh our man um arthur conan doyle and says uh to him my compliments on your very ingenious and very interesting adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Can this be my old friend Joe Bell, who's a reference to Joseph Bell, who yeah. you'll know because of yeah. the tie-in with the Ripper and all that kind of stuff? So I just thought, I've got to bring this up. Um, the, first of all, 
pretty cool little story there um you know the the the, the balzac pg woodhouse robert louis stevenson now having a little chat to his pal and saying you know is this our old pal um from the university of edinburgh i think joseph bell was operating out i think yeah 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 uh, so i've got to just don't don't feel don't feel i'm derailing you here but just seeing as it, the, the, it were being hosted where we're being hosted do you put any store by that idea of balance? You do, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, is uh, John? John you'll, you probably know more than, about this than I do, but yeah, he's completely based on him, one hundred percent. Because um, Conan Doyle said at one point that you know he would, he would be would be with Doctor Bell, and he would basically deduce things that no one else could see, and he just, um, he, he thought, yeah, it's, it's basically it's a direct comparison, obviously with a few embellishments. Okay, I'm sure, and I, I'm, I, I'm sure he wasn't quite as rude as Sherlock is. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I've, got, I've got a quote here. Um, so, uh, in a letter dated May 1892, um, Conan Doyle wrote a letter to Dr. Joseph Bell and uh, said, it is most certainly to you that I owe Sherlock Holmes. Um, and Doyle later said, I used and amplified his methods and I tried to build a scientific detective who solved cases on their own merits. There we have it. I love it. I love that. Now, there's one further little... Sorry, can I just say, I love the fact that John's Wikipedia. John, <laughs> John, John is Wikipedia on this podcast. It's great. God bless you, John. It's fantastic. <laughs> As regards uh, involvement in actually catching the Ripper, is that nonsense, Carl? Oh, God. Uh, well, this has been hosted by Rippercast, and there's going to be lots of people with very, very different views. <laughs> the, the, the majority of um, Ripperologists, my, my John and I are included in this, don't give a damn who the Ripper is. It's not oh. about the Ripper at all. It's about the social, uh, social history. It's about the streets. It's about the background of the case. Sure, sure, sure. I just I read yeah. this lovely, lovely thing that it could have been part. He could have been involved in the catching thereof, and I just thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, Conan Doyle said that I came up with the Jewel, Jewel the Ripper theory. Yeah. Which is um, only let down by the fact that every single witness who saw the murderer, and there's quite a few of them, didn't at no point said, yes, it looks like a man but, but dressed as a woman. You know, and, and there's the whole thing about, was it a midwife? Because, you know, they could walk around with blood on their clothes. I'm fairly sure they couldn't, actually. But, um, I, I've, I've derailed you, my friend. I apologise. No, I, I think as well, there was a friend of uh, Dr. Bell who claimed that uh, Bell had either been asked to analyse the case or he'd done it independently um, and he'd come to some kind of conclusion. But I don't think there's any actual evidence uh, for that as far, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, that's what I, I came across. Oh, sorry, you mean uh, Belmont, not, not Conan Doyle. Okay, Conan Doyle came up with the Jewel the Ripper thing. Yeah, I came across a, 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 there had been a book written by a, a Diane Madsen um, uh, talking about uh, the, it's called the Conan Doyle notes, the secrets of Jack the Ripper, um, and you know it was basically uh, the, the, that the, the Joe Bell tying comes there. But I think there was a suggestion that Bell might himself have been involved in sort of solving the case, uh, that that actual case. So I, I don't, I didn't know if there was any truth to it or not. I don't, I don't think anyone tried to solve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old political hot potato and all that. Um, the Ripper people know what I mean by that. Um, okay, let's move away from Jack. Uh, and uh, um, A Noble Bachelor, it's the 10th in the season, uh, in, the, in the collection of the events of Sherlock Holmes. There is no crime, which I think maybe that's six of them without a crime in the first, um, first 10 or so. Big question is, Trev, did you enjoy the story? Do you know what I did? Um, like I say, I had read it because I bought myself a really nice 
Penguin edition um, when I was in college um, because I, that's all I did. I, I, I didn't even read what, what was on the course. I kind of read everything else, um, spent days in the library, endless days in the library just reading. And that was one of the things that I managed to, to acquire for myself for a few pence somewhere in a secondhand bookstore. So I have read the story before. And when I read it first, I guess it's probably not one of the more memorable ones, but I liked the humor in it. Uh, what, what, well, what I deemed to be humor, maybe, maybe other people wouldn't find it funny. Reading it again, to be honest with you, Carl, there's a certain, oh, I don't know, what is the word twee? There's a little bit twee. Um, yeah, it's very like as well. Just just something about it. But there are so many different things in it. I love, I, I you know, you talked about with, with the Ripper, it's all about society. I love the, 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 the constant references to class. As an Irishman, this stuff knocks me for six because... We just we can't really relate to that in the way, in the same way that, that that the English can. So the class stuff always is fascinating to me, and it's it's this whole story is just imbued with it from start to finish, uh, even from, from the start where where, where um, Holmes is talking about um, uh, they're getting the lowdown on on um, on on um, old um, Lord, oh, Ray, Lord Roberts and Simon. Yes, it's, yeah. Well, Should I, we just call him Simon from now on? It's just going to make things a lot easier. You'd call him Simo, which I was loving. Simo, yeah, big, uh, big yeah. Bobby Simo. Big Bobby Simo, but so they're they're getting the they're doing their homework on Big Bobby Simo before he arrives at the house, and there's all this stuff about oh he's got Plantagenet blood and he's got what something on the who which, whose blood did he have on the distaff side? I can't remember. Oh, Tudor blood on the distaff side of Plantagenet, and, 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 and was, the, the talk about Calthorpes as well, which I had to oh, look. Tremendous! <laughs> it's just tremendous, and again, you, uh, you get to revel in his squirming, um, sort of un- uncomfortable squirming at the end, where uh, it's all unraveling. The tale has been told by old um, exposition Hattie, and uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah. not, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. In you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And and so you know, he, he's asking, "Hey, shake my hands," you know, and he's like, "Yeah, oh, God, okay," and uh, stay for a bit of grubs says Sherlock uh, I probably won't <laughs> you don't mind you know, I'm, I, this is not really I've, I've been humiliated here kind of thing but I love it I, just, I think that, that's fascinating um I, I there's there's a lot there's a lot to recommend the story so uh, in 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 a, in a very long-winded way Carl I did really enjoy reading it again I've actually read it I think three times over the last few days just so I, I knew exactly what I was chatting about there's there's a um I like a few things about it. It's, it's not the most dramatic. Um, we'll, we'll come to how it ends, which I think is just weird, to be honest. Let's get around around on a dinner party. So that, that, that went very Agatha Christie for me. Um, uh, but I really like the term. Uh, every now and then, Conan Doyle just throws in a lovely little term. And I like Watson surrounded by a cloud of newspapers. Lovely. I thought, oh, I'm stealing that. <laughs> I, like, I like that straight away. And I love the scene where... Um, obviously, because Lords and Simon is incredibly snobbish, he says, "I would not have given this woman the name that I have, the, you know, the, the the honor to bear, and all that sort of things." And he basically, firstly, he, he tells um, Sherlock to be in his chambers, be in be in his rooms, because I'm coming around and I'm a big deal. And then Sherlock basically says, "Yes, I am descending." The last person I dealt with was a king, and you can see Scandinavia. Yeah, practically going, "Oh, oh, 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 right, okay. What well, did he did he lose his wife? You know, I can't tell you that. Obviously, no, no, quite right, quite right." Yes, and it just yeah, it just yeah. puts him on the back foot immediately. So it says in um, Leslie Klinger's notes in this, it's it's quite strange how Sherlock for the the only time ever I think he bows when Lord Saint Simon comes in, and bearing in mind that he literally sat there and took the piss out of the King of Bohemia. 
didn't even stand up and said like, you know, yeah, you know, I was aware of you are the second you were in the room and mm. what have you. But Lord St. Simon, he's up, he's up and bowing, which I think is very, very uncharacteristic. Yeah, and yet this is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The English society of the time um, that there was just there are just things that you must do, um, and it's fast, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And just on the name, we're, we're kind of joking about it, but you know the name Saint Simon. It I, I I was approximately five years ago of age when I realised. That when you could, people were talking about, you know, I, obviously I, I was, I did a lot of acting and I, I love doing accents. And so you'd be taking people off and you'd be very interested in um, uh, names that suit different regions. And so when I was trying to do someone, you know, with a, a, an upper class um, background, you come across the name Sinjin Smythe and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So it was, it was only five years ago that I put it together that Sinjin was St. John. In the yeah. same way that this is Saint Simon, um, yeah. I, 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 I was I was mortified, Carl, because I've walked past the Oliver Singen Gogarty pub about a billion times, and it says it right there, Saint John. But anyway, yes, yeah, so, so Saint Simon, yeah, quite the name, quite the name. Well, I, well, I can tell you something about this. There was um, in the early eighties, there was an Irish singer called I think she was Irish, Rosemary. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she, she was on that. Now this is going back a bit. Um, she was on um, Punchlines with Lenny Bennett. I'm sure we all remember that. I'm sure we've all got. <laughs> I'm sure we've all got old tapes, videos somewhere. And um, she very much um, went round down to these sort of. I'm just a local Irish girl at heart. And um, one of the answers was um, was a member of the cabinet, which was Norman St. John Stevis. And she kept saying, "Lord, Lord St. John Stevis." Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, so much so that they made her do it five times so they could point at her. Yeah, um, and that that's I got it from that and nothing else. I know um just to go briefly into Liverpool, um there is a, a football uh North Blackpool footballer called um Ian St. John and there was there was a commentator I've seen who calls and, and he and he passes to St. John. Who the hell is yep. St. John? Yeah, You're I've seen that. Me. Yeah, oh, wow. Ian St. Oh wow. Oh I love that. Um so yeah, so yeah, don't feel bad about that at all. I, it, was, it was only Lenny Bennett, as in, in many ways in my life, Trev, lit me to the truth. Uh, <laughs> Len, Lenny will do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to put a picture of Lenny Bennett up on Twitter now after this. I can't believe or, 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 or on Instagram. That's or something like that. I haven't it, it, since the 80s. <laughs> you look like Gary McAllister, but we are going into football too much. Um, my fault. It's, it's an interesting story because... Sherlock says all the time, he even says in this story, look, I have no interest whatsoever in, you know, about the, the bank balance of the people I work for. That changes in the Priory School, which is coming up, where he basically says, I'm a poor man, when he's getting paid at the end. Um, this one, he really is, I think he genuinely is affected by the, the class of the people involved. Mm. Um, and he's still quite offhand with St. Simon, but at the same time, he doesn't try and beat him. He doesn't try and sort of talk him down like he like he would do with you know the, the King of Bohemia. No, he's 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 not as condescending as he could be, given that uh, Saint Simon does come across quite um, priggish, uh, quite the stuffed shirt. He has an opportunity, Sherlock, to to belittle him, uh, especially at the end. Um, but he has it's it's this sense of decorum, whatever it is, uh, that seems to be just there because the, it, it's just, it wouldn't be cricket, Carl. 
I yeah. think, is, is basically it. And you're right about the money thing here as well, because if you remember one of the little details here, one of the key details, is the fact that Sherlock notices that these prices are exorbitant for the various things yes. built. Yeah. And so, you know, and then he goes, he, he can narrow it down to a couple of hotels on Northumberland Road. So he goes from one, and then he has a lucky break and blah, blah, blah. But it it, it, it's he has it, there's there's a pointed awareness in him there about the value of things and i think and again feel free to tell me i'm talking nonsense but i think the little um uh laid on soiree that he has the little uh, table full of offerings the dusty cobwebby bottles of obviously some plank that's quite good and the little um the, the, little the, the, the woodcock starter the woodcock starter, you know. So I'm, I think I'm thinking Sherlock. You know what he's doing here? He's actually saying, "Okay, I better. I've got. I've got Sin uh, Simon coming over. I better put on a show, the yeah. uh, befitting of his status." I think that's happening. I think, I think he 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 doesn't want to let himself down. He wants to hold the grand soiree and. Um, Later on, he'll expound on his globalism. I want to get back to that, but I think you're right. I think there's something there's something there, and I think it is to do with money and 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 status. Yeah, and it, it, that never happens anywhere else, anywhere else in the story. So as again, the, the whole this all starts with the king, all of it. The king of the king of Bohemia, and it, it, he's treated differently like that. Um, also, I think it's quite interesting that. Holmes is in is involved in a, a wedding story because again we we've said that many times on the show that you know there doesn't have to be a crime it just has to be a problem that's all he's interested in solving the problem and ordinarily he would say unless it's um is outre is the term he would use um then I'll, I'll take it then and he says that he's used to. These, these sorts of dramas playing out when before the wedding or on the honeymoon, but not seconds afterwards. And I think that's what makes this story slightly different from the usual sort of wedding, you know, mystery of, you know, a bride disappearing or, or, or what have you. Or, and, you know, because they, they're usually involved in things like, you know, bigamy cases or anything like that, which, of course, this nearly is. Um, I, just, I think this, is, that, that, this makes it a little bit more different from... The usual stories as well, because even though the, the ones where there aren't a crime in them, there's a suggestion of a crime. Something is criminal is going to happen. But this one, not at all. Well, the actual scandal, as it's referred to itself, the actual problem that you refer to, it's quite prosaic. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's just a woman finds herself in a situation through no fault of her own. And all of a sudden has an opportunity to get her life back to where she wanted it to be and takes that opportunity. It, it's it's not it's not dramatic, but as you say, the crooks, the 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 Sherlock thing is solving the riddle. And that's 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 what's engaging about the story. And even if it does take a couple of pages of Hattie Exposition, it's it's worth it. <laughs> what a great character, Hattie Exposition <laughs> truly is. Um there's also a great deal of comedy when um, when the strade comes in as well, and I lo- I love I've, I know you're supposed to love it for this, but I love the fact that he always puts the strade down all the time, oh, and, yet, and, and yet quite likes him. He does yeah. like him. He, he does grow as as the stories develop. He does become a lot more affectionate um, yeah. to him. But he, he's just I mean, it's cruel, isn't it? It's so it's cruel. So... Yeah, this, this is a fascinating note. You're reading the wrong side of the paper. No, I'm not. Well, what's going on? I'm not telling you. That is, that is literally that scene. 
I love that he says at one stage, very good, Lestrade. You really are very fine indeed. <laughs> I mean, he could not be more condescending. Oh, bless you. And you can you can just you can just hear that. And you know what? Again, I don't know if it's if it's if it's um uh, uncouth to refer to the multiple television versions uh, of the characters, but they all are variations. Um of this character that's really portrayed really well in this story. The whole um, uh, Lestrade and, 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 and Holmes dynamic is perfectly, perfectly portrayed here. He's only there because he thinks Holmes can help. And Holmes is helping himself to whatever little hints he can get from Lestrade and pats him on the head and sends him on his way frustrated and angry. It's just perfect. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an absolutely lovely thing. I mean, I mean the, just to go back to the BBC version, um, it, it, the, the way that's nodded at really is he keeps calling him Greg. No, sorry, he keeps calling him anything but his actual name, which is Greg. Of course, it's, it's, I think it's Giles in the book actually. Yeah. But you know, it's just sort of yeah, I've forgotten your name again. <sighs> okay. Um, always got to put him down in in his place at the, uh, all the time, and I, I love that exchange and the fact that the strayed finds something genuinely huge. It's a massive find. But I mean, for credit to him, and even then, he gets it completely wrong. It's nothing to do with Flora Miller whatsoever. Poor old Flora. Oh, by the way, we're coming back to Flora. I've got views. I, I, I want I want to hear the views. But again, just to emphasize, credit where it's due. Because he does, like, his, you know, he, he stresses that he, he he's a beat cop. He gets out there, he does the work. Yeah. Instead of sitting expounding about theories, fancy theories or whatever. Um, But, like, he comes across, he, like, he finds the mother load of evidence, the, the dress. And <laughs> should we stop and talk about the dress? Because I know John wants to, wants us to talk about one specific aspect about the dress. We can't leave this undiscussed. Yeah, we should we should get into the dress just because it's so to speak. So to speak. Um while we were um planning the recording of this, John made the excellent point that this is the only wedding dress he's ever heard of which comes with pockets. Mm. And um, how how does she get the note? Where has she put the note? That's amazing. T- tell me your theory. I, I mean, it's 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 a fact. Is it is it a bit too much? Is it, is this whole thing a bit too much? The only thing I can think of is <laughs> just putting my sort of Victorian woman's head on for a second. I've, I've, I'm walking down some very very dodgy streets here, saying this sort of stuff. Um, that she might tuck it into a sleeve, maybe. Right. But, okay. um, yeah, but I like I like John's idea that you know she genuinely has like sort of pockets, like almost wearing sort of Victorian white jeans. Or something like that. <laughs> that, is a, that is quite a strange thing. We do this thing on, on the show, Trev, where um, every now and then someone will point out um, an element of story which can't possibly exist. And I think John's found it for this one. There's no pockets of wedding dresses. How is she going to get the note and put it in? You know. I think so. I mean, like, unless it's unless it's custom made, and why would you? It's it's there's something. It's the only thing... <laughs> just just in case her ex dead husband turns up in the front it, row exactly. carrying flowers. Exactly. <laughs> you've, got, I mean, you've, got to, you've got to get used to this sort of thing. A girl's got to have hope, you know. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's something about it. It just seems so clunky, and yet, you know, you just forgive all because uh, you're in the middle of this little uh, little jape, which the story is. Ah, uh, yeah. So sorry, I wanted to derail you there to talk about the the dress for a moment because uh, it's an important little thing. I, I, I it needed thing. I've just had a quick look at the Victorian Albert Museum, and they've got an entire article on dresses with pockets in the Victorian era. 
because um, and, until the late Victorian era, um, in like standard dresses, um, pockets were very common. Um, but so, wedding dresses. Yeah, but would it would it necessarily have been an actual a, a specific wedding dress? Necessarily? Well, bear, bear in mind who she's marrying and where it is. It's yeah. Hanover Square, isn't it? Yeah, you would imagine old old Saint Simon would be it would be uh, would be insisting on the best um, for his, his his good lady. I don't know. It's it's a weird. It's the fact that it's a wedding dress. Obviously, dresses and pockets. Uh, yeah, I get that. I, I I'm actually not surprised to hear that. But the functionality of it in a wedding dress seems odd. That, and again, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's not at all. And maybe you were being uh, facetious about the note from the the potential for the note. But um, I don't know. Just it it just it it jarred with me when I read it first, and then again when I was reading it recently. If there's any if there's any listeners who've just got married while wearing a white wedding dress, please get in touch with the show on Twitter at <laughs> yeah. uh, Adler Two and uh, let us know how you would do that. What well, one thing I, I I wanted to mention um, because it. It only really hit me after about the, probably the seventh time I read the story, is that there is a really, really big red herring in it, where they talk about when they're going through the copy of De Brett's or wherever it was to see who Lord Lord Robert St. Simon is. There's a hint that he's skint, and that she's quite loaded because her dad's a big oil. Uh, he's a he's a miner, isn't he? He's a, he's a mining magnet. Um, and even Holmes even says to him, you know, if she came with a huge diary, dowry. And um, he says, well, no more than is usually expected in my family. Mm. Um, so there's the thought of, though, did he do away with her? And now, you know, now with the wedding as a fate accomplished, that he gets his cash. And Holmes even says to him, you know, have you investigated the fact that that dowry is now yours if she's disappeared? And he says, I, I haven't done a thing about it. Because he hasn't, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. That, that only if it'd be quite late that, you know, he's trying to sort of distract us in many ways. Of course, that that is that is the, the uh, maybe it's maybe it's the the more cynical twenty first century reader thinks about that immediately. It's the it's the husband what done it, um, and you just you, you know that's the the idea. Look, you know you've got your money out of this. The wedding, as you say, is a fait accompli. So, um, but uh, there's something very natural and, and and believable. I know it's only reading words about St Simon's reaction. It's like no, I haven't even thought about that man. What do you, yeah. what do you do? You know what I mean? So it, it it's quite it's quite interesting. But, you know, I know you wanted to talk about um, St. Simon as a character, but you also want to talk about Flora and Hattie. And I think we should have a chat about both of them. Um, is there anywhere in particular you want to go with that? Because I've got a theory on both. OK, um, I love that Trevor's now hosting the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just can't help yourself, can you? Uh, <laughs> this is how we deal with Anfield Index podcasts. Um, yeah, the one thing I've got about, um, again, it, it is mentioned in the annotated homes is Flora Miller is treated disgracefully by everyone in this story. Yeah. I mean, Holmes absolutely just blows off the whole thing. Yeah. And um, there's other instances where, he, uh, you know, where, where someone has been damaged by that, he will, you know, go to the town and say, you know, no, you don't do that. That's just not on. He does it himself in um, the story Charles Augustus Milverton, where obviously he gets engaged to Aggie the, the maid and then disappears once he's got the keys to the room he wants to get into or something. Or a, a nice plan to the house, but everything about this story is Flora Miller's done that. She's really, really being upset, and he he, he claims, since Simon claims that you know he didn't do anything anything wrong, she's got no cause to be upset by anything. But they all go, all right, okay, until her initials turn up on the um on the hotel bill. 
I just think that's really, really dark. And maybe it speaks to the time. I don't know. In fact, it probably definitely does. But that seems to be a bit, a bit too ungallant for me. It, it absolutely does. It also speaks to the uh, trade um, Flora appeared to have a, a dancers. Uh, yeah. They've, at, they've even got to make that posh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, basically at, at a gentleman's club, um, which uh, our pal uh, uh, Simo was a we regular... Probably, f- probably he frequented regularly and he talks about his fondness for her and he was, she was very well known to him and she was a bit of a, uh, an obsessive type and, and, and it grew exceptionally and, and, and excessively fond of him and attached to him. And he alludes to the fact that she wrote these horrible letters after he was married, you know, but the, the interesting thing, and the only re- reason I wanted to go there as well, because I think, I think it's a really good point you've made is that Hattie actually tells us, in her Basel exposition, that some woman came uh, talking something or other about Lord St. Simon to me, seemed to me a little, from the little I heard, as if he had a little secret of his own. Yeah, exactly. I, love, I, I love that little callback to that. I think that's, that's important, really well I think. I think that's yeah. important. And, it, and it, it, it goes to what you're ch- talking about, about how, how she's really done badly too by every character here. She's, just, she's, she's dismissed because of who she is and what she is, I think. Yeah, and the, it, it's really, I like the fact that there's almost like a sisterly affection in that as well. As in, you know, I'm not the only one you've messed around in the past or, you know, it's just like that. I also really like that St. Simon's line, and I must admit I've used this myself, um, where he says, I was amused by her society and she could tell that I was amused by her society. Yeah. You yeah, yeah. smoke git. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was amused by her society. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, that reminds me of that the, the Oscar Wilde thing is that when he, he said on when he was on trial of um, there's something like I have a, ah, oh, it's not the word passion, but it's something like, that word's going to come to me. I have a pa- a passion to um, uh, to educate society or something like that to civilize society, uh, and that that just made me think of that. I was amused by her society. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's it's the it's the condescension. I think it fits perfectly into the earlier chat about how Holmes uh, defers to this guy, despite the fact that he is sort of like I say, a stuffed shirt um, with this kind of priggish manner to him. Um, in the same way, they can all quite happily dismiss Flora as a non-event, or her feelings completely uh, uh, don't don't count for anything. Uh, she can be treated with uh, whatever lack of dignity is 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 they 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 feel is is uh, is warranted. Because, you know, that's just the way life is, society is. She's in the wrong strata with the wrong job. But, but what an honour for her to know Lord St. Simon. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and to, to have experienced his society. Yeah, and, and of course, he's, he's an absolute hoot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he is, he is. I mean as, we, as we say in, in, in football terms, he, he's a challenging pint, isn't he? <laughs> that, is, that, is a, that is a dark night out, a night out with Lord Robert St. Simon. You know, he's amused by a society. Good yeah, he, yeah, yeah. You're not. You're not. He's. He's not. He's not top of your list for a for a point. That's for sure. And yet, for all of this, the, the I'm going to come to the end a bit later on. But at the end of it, he turns out to be fairly human. I genuinely felt sorry for him at the end. Even when Holmes says, you know, I think it's always interesting with, with how he chooses to end the stories. And and Holmes says at the end of this, you know, we can't judge him too harshly because honestly, his world's just been blowing apart. He's just about to—he's just about to marry someone, and then suddenly the ex-husband, dead husband, turns up, and now I look dead foolish in front of my mates, which I realise is snobbish. But even if it's not snobbish, that's not nice. 
It's not, but again, it's not very much part of what was expected from the gentleman. Now, obviously, we can have the extreme version, the the, the misted monocle sort of uh, curly mustachioed villain of 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 so much literature uh, in the gentleman bracket. But most gentlemen, they had to they had to carry themselves with a certain level of of decorum. And I thought I I think there's a dignity in his response. Uh, yeah, know. absolutely is. I think I think he comes out of it quite well. If, if yeah. anything. Yeah, I think so. I'd agree with you there. Yet, despite that, the least I think he could say is, oh, well done for working out. Cheers. I want to know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I, I might you to shake my hand. is isn't really the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the expect that comes out of it as well. Um, we should also talk about um, uh, Frank. He's Francis, then he becomes Frank in the story. Mm. Um, being attacked by Apache Indians. Yeah. I, I, have, you, I, have you got somewhere you want to go with this? Because I have a take. If you, if you're, if you're just trying. I was, I was hoping you'd have a take because I read that and thought, really? I mean, obviously that maybe that's the uh, again. Leslie says in the annotated books that you know that this would that, that quite, could quite possibly have happened. But the, the reason I say that is because there's a story coming up, uh, the crooked man, where a man is presumed dead and he's just been tortured and gets out and gets his revenge. I know this isn't a revenge tale as such; it's a, it's a problem tale. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you my take um, because, look, doing the great stories, you end up reading about these. And an awful lot of the reason I do certain stories is because they're not troubled by copyright issues and, and they go back yeah. to the, the end of the of the previous century, the start of this one. I think you got up as far as 1947 before you have to worry about any of that nonsense. Um, so you discover things about people who are alive around the turn of the century, the 20th century. And you discover that these, you know, literary greats, had lots of skeletons in their in their in their closet. One thing that I'm very very interested in is, and I'm I'm getting to the Apache Indians. Don't worry. We've just been talking about the the various strata in society and how um, Sherlock the First, uh, Saint Simon, and stuff like that, and how they can dismiss um, um, flora. Um, Sherlock says a line which is pure globalism at one stage. He says, "I trust at least that you will honor me with your company." He's talking to. Um, the Americans. He says, it is it is always a joy to meet an American, Mr. Moulton, yes. for I am one of those who believe that the folly of a monarch and the blundering of a minister in far gone years will not prevent our children from being someday citizens of the same worldwide country under a flag which shall be a quartering of the Union Jack and the stars with the stars and stripes. Now, holy holy moly, that's early globalism talk there from sure. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's one. But two the reason we, I can tie in the Apaches here is, however realistic or not it is, based on the evidence that you, you, you were citing there, the only thing you can say about the Apaches is they're worse than the colonials, right? Yeah. That's it. That's it. In in that society, there is there's a different there's there are different levels and layers, and they're the bad guys we don't have to worry about. They're the guys we don't have to um, consider. Um, they can just be um, two dimensional, uh, evil, uh, you know, uh, ignoble savages, and that's very much the feeling I got from it. You know, because everyone reading that, I mean, Christ alive, Carly, in the 1970s in Ireland. I was convinced that the Indians in inverted commas were the bad guys and the cowboys were the good guys. So of course there's going to be that kind of indoctrination and people have that. That'd be my take on it. Yeah, I, I saw it. I mean, just to, to go completely off topic here, um, I saw a tweet recently where, where a, a Trumpite was saying, like, you know, these are um, immigrants coming over and taking our land, etc. And someone just replied, well, "How do you think you got there?" 
You are the grandson, great-grandson of somebody who did the same thing for you. I, I think there's a really interesting... Because when I read that, obviously I read it years ago, my, my first thought was that that is obviously Conan Doyle's view. That, you know, he sees the two countries as based together. And this is only, what, 1889, John? These, these were written? Or 1891, I think, for the, the first um, collection were. And um, so independence is only 100 years, 120 years, something like that, at that point. And, yeah. And because it's Victorian as well, you know, as, as, as Rip Rogers will always say, England is the biggest place in the world. England is the biggest. It's, it, London is the capital of the world. It's huge. And now he's talking about the new world and the empire. The empire is still a thing. The empire yeah. is still a thing, and it, and and the concept of um, of empire is still a thing, and it's a source of pride for even the little man in the street, right? Uh, this is the concept, um, and so that's why it, it's just. It, I found it really jarring, that little bit of we'll all be united under this sort of hybrid flag. Okay, settle down, Sherlock, you know? I thought it was a really, it's, a, it's an odd one. I didn't see that coming. And um, I, wonder, I wonder it is a reflection of of, of, um, of Conan Doyle. And I, I, I read as much as I could to try and find. It's no real overt history of him espousing beliefs like that. I mean, I know he was interested. Yeah, and he meets Americans again. I'm thinking of the Dancing Men, for example. Mm. Um, and um, no, and uh, even again, uh, the yellow face. I'm, I'm, there, there is no reference whatsoever to having any other views than that. It was almost like, um, it, it was basically, Watson, hand me my temporary soapbox. I have this thought, which I must relay, and never yeah. discuss ever again. It's a really, really strange thing. But but Frank and Hattie are so stereotypically American as well. I mean, the dialogue uh, from Hattie is, I mean, at one stage she says something like, uh, what what was I thought I was going to do a faint, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm like, what what is this? I think he's really struggling to get across some sort of um, uh, you know, Yank dialect. Uh, but it's basically what you have is th- th- they are very much seen as yeah, okay, they're 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 Arivists, aren't they? They're nouveau riche types. Yeah. They're they're coming over here. Stealing our noble bachelors, right? That's basically what's happening. Well, there's even mention of, a, of a, um, a newspaper report where it says, you know, it's quite ironic that she's probably more rich than he is these days, and you know, she's just she's just mining. It's like it's like the old Jane Austen stories where um, the aristocracy meets the aristocracy, but one of them got their money from trade. Ugh. Yes, you know, it's not quite the same thing. This this also gives me the chance to talk about my favourite piece of New York um, trivia. Which is the reason that um, um, Fifth Avenue was the most desirable place in the early days of New York, the most desirable place to live, is because it's the furthest point from both rivers. Oh, because it's that. right in the middle. So you know, if you live slightly near the East River, you might you might have actually made your money from trade. I mean, oh. I'm, I'm vomiting as I say. What a horrible idea that is! Actually yeah. making money by trade rather than I'm the 17th Duke of blah blah blah. That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. Yeah. And, and that's that that attitude the, the the essence of what you've just described is very much at the heart of this story there's no two ways about it no two ways about it uh, I, I i don't know if there's if there's if if you, if you if you want to wrap it up on that but i just want to mention as well hattie's second name okay so i'm listening to i listened to a podcast version of this and obviously and i think you'd probably pronounce it as duran right 
but it is very uh, very clearly Doran, right? It's an Irish name. Yeah, yeah, and, and and her dad is Aloysius Doran. Yes. Yeah. So I'm thinking Big Allo comes across on the boat, probably famine times, like so yeah. many others, tens of thousands. I'm, of, I'm, I'm, du- I'm duty bound to say one of your lot. Yeah, go on. One of my lot. Um, so <laughs> so so Big Allo is actually probably a, a, an Irish. Yeah, lad, who's brought up um, Hattie, and she's got her, uh, you know, yank uh, yank mannerisms and her rough upbringing in the mines and all the rest of it. And uh, basically, I love the irony that it's actually a, a returning Paddy who's got more money than uh, St. Simon. I yeah. do enjoy it. I do enjoy yeah. that. Yeah, I think that is, that is a little satirical nod, isn't it? And that's, yeah. um, maybe even the little bow from Sherlock was slightly ironic. Get yeah. that, you know, you're being let down by someone who is significantly lower of social strata than you, but she's minted, and I know <laughs> what happened. <laughs> so maybe, maybe there's an element of that too. Yeah, yeah, unlucky. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think you. Um, I know on the BBC Clive Merrison version, she's referred to as Duran, Matthew Duran. Oh, for uh, sure. Uh, and um, it, yeah, it's Doran. I had another. Uh, what I what I try to do when I. Obviously, I reread the stories again in preparation. I know them all anyway, but I'll re- then I'll listen to the Merison um, Sherlock's because they're my favourite. Um, and then I'll listen to the old-time radio, you know, where they start advertising Petrie wine in the middle of it. Before we come with the second half of our story, say, have you ever had this wine, you know, just after dinner? You know, and what? And suddenly <laughs> Basil Rathbone starts talking about it. No, no, the host starts talking to this, that Nigel Bruce is Watson about, um, about you know, do you know what the greatest thing about wine is? It's almost as good as sherry. And here, Petrie Sherry's, we do, honestly, what? Hang on. Is this man dead or what? Uh, yeah, so, so I listened to one of those as well. And they say they say um, Doran on that version. Or they say Duran on the BBC, probably about 1990, I'd say, version. Yeah, that makes Which sense. Maybe slightly earlier, too. Trev, we've done an hour. Um, Can I just quickly add something there as well? On, please do. Thank you, Wikipedia. Conan Doyle um, was of Irish Catholic descent. Um, I, th- I thought he was, yeah, I didn't want to say it, but I thought yeah, he was. His, his father was, although born in England, uh, was from an Irish Catholic family, and his mother was Irish Catholic as well. There you go. And a big pro-vaxxer as well. Just to, <laughs> just to, just to throw that in. I didn't get, didn't get to talk about his opposition to anti-vaxxers, and we didn't get to mention um, how circumstantial evidence is occasionally very convincing, as when you find a trout in the milk. To quote Thoreau's example, yeah, I saw that. yeah, I was, I was what, what a that's line a, that is! It's a great, it's a great line, yeah, as well. Um, we are going to have to wrap it up. Um, sadly, every, I would explain for anyone who doesn't hear me and Trev on, on our football show, um, this would be the point where Trev would say, "We never got around to talking about Morgan Freeman and the Bees," <laughs> which we've been saying now for over a year. Um, so I'm afraid this is there's a crossover point. So we don't have time to talk about that here. Um, you enjoyed this story, Trev. I don't know if you know so much about the other stories. We always ask if you like the story, is there a story that you don't particularly like? A Sherlock story. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, for some reason, and I don't know why, but the one that you mentioned earlier on that I think uh, was John's honour to do, A Case of Identity, never really sort of uh, resonates with me. I can, I keep forgetting it. It's, it. it's it's not one of the more memorable ones for me. But I can't say I dislike it actively. I just It doesn't really resonate. It's the typewriter story. That's what we should have called it, John. We should have called it the typewriter story. Typewriter story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Convicted. By a typewriter. Trev, thank you so much for coming on. 
Um, we'd love to have you back on again. And I, I, we're doing a quick pro quo. I'm coming on to the great stories to talk about the Mammoth Twisted Lip. Absolutely. Can't wait for that as well. That's going to be in a few weeks' time. So uh, thanks for, 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 for the, uh, the honour of being on this show. I enjoyed it very much. And from now on, you'll be asking the questions. Thanks very much for listening. And we're going to be back with, I think the next one is the Beryl Coronet, which is going to be interesting, shall we say. Thanks very much for listening. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>